You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Good morning. Um, if you haven't been here in a while, it's a different Adam that stepped up here. Um, so maybe you were expecting Adam. I'm grateful to be able to step in um, this morning and uh, share some truth with us all. Um, we're going to be looking at John chapter 14 today. And uh, I'm excited about this passage. This is one that I was directed to um, specifically because in the fall of last year, I had an opportunity to speak to several students about the assurances that we have of the second coming of Christ. And aside from the eyewitness accounts, aside from the transformation that we see happen in the lives of the disciples, Um, I taught on this specific passage because from the very words of Jesus, there's great comfort and assurance in the second coming that I want to point us to today. As I was looking at the text, there's also great comfort provided here um, in uh, verse 1 that we'll take a look at. And then there's also great clarity um, in verse 6 as we see Jesus proclaim He is the way, the truth, and the life. Um, But if you've been here with us, you know we've been going through Exodus, and so this Uh, The setting of John 14 actually ties into where we are in Exodus as we see the triumphal exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. Uh, Jesus is uh, talking about his second coming, which will be our triumphal exodus from this world. Uh, We've been looking at the Passover and the tradition that was started with the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. This is during the week when Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he's celebrated as the Messiah. But now we're on that Thursday night where Jesus is talking to his disciples and he will soon be killed as that sacrificial lamb, the fulfillment of the Passover that we've been looking at um, in Exodus. But then there's also deep, deep, rich comfort um, that we see in Exodus that we're going to look at today in Exodus chapter 3 when we saw the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. He says, I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. We're going to see today that Jesus knows our suffering. Jesus knows what we're going through. He knows our hearts, our minds, and we have a high priest who can sympathize with us. And there's great comfort, and that's a great source of calm um, for us as we're dealing with things in our lives that are, that are troubling. Um, so we're going to start by reading uh, the, the passage here, John 14, verse 1. It says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Our summary sentence for today says, Believers can take great comfort in the truth that Jesus cares about the condition of your heart and knows that the greatest source of calm is found in a right understanding of who He is, what He's done, 
and what He will do. Believers can take great comfort in the truth that Jesus cares about the condition of your heart and knows that the greatest source of calm is found in a right understanding of who He is, what He's done, and what He'll do. For our kids, Jesus cares about how I feel and tells me to trust Him because He knows what's best for me. Jesus cares about how I feel and tells me to trust Him because He knows what's best for me. So uh, in John 14, kind of uh, a little context. So Jesus is in the last days of His life here on earth. In 24 hours, He'll be crucified. Um, He'll be killed, just as I said, at the same time that the, the Jewish people would have been sacrificing their lambs as a part of the Passover Um, In John 14, we're specifically focused on a portion of the conversation that Jesus has with his disciples in that upper room on Thursday night. Um, This is where uh, we know he washes the disciples' feet, he introduces the institution of the Lord's Supper, and he's giving his final words to his followers. Uh, This conversation during the last night is recorded in uh, John chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16, and then has a portion of the, um, his prayer in John chapter 17. Um, so the first thing I think would be helpful for us is to kind of take in the disciples' perspective, and I want to share with you a little bit of context around what the disciples are hearing, um, what they're experiencing, um, and ultimately that troubled times can make for troubled hearts. So the, uh, Jesus' disciples, they love him, they trust him, but he's starting to say things that are almost impossible for them to comprehend. Everything they've been hoping for from a, a, a kingdom perspective is being torn away by the very one whom they followed these past three years. Their expectations and assumptions of this reigning Messiah who had come into Jerusalem are unraveling within their hearts and minds as Jesus is telling them, I'm leaving. The very one who said, follow me, now telling them, I am leaving. In John chapter 13, Jesus says, little children, yet a little while am I with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. He says, I'm leaving and you can't come. Later on, Peter tells him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus said, Where I'm going, you can't follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. So from the disciples' perspective, this would have created some significant turmoil in their hearts. After all that they had seen him do, all the miracles, all the the truth that they had heard him say, they've been following him for these past three years, and now he's, he's leaving them. After they've left everything in their previous lives, and now he is leaving them. Um, He was just welcomed into Jerusalem with those shouts of Hosanna, and now it's over. So they've gone from the highest of highs in terms of Jesus' ministry to the lowest of lows. In the midst of that, and all their wondering, their fearing about Jesus, where he's going, why he's leaving, they're also trying to come to terms with the news that Jesus had just shared with them that one of them sitting at the table was a traitor. One of their companions that had spent all these years with them had ill intent towards their teacher. And if that wasn't enough to attempt to take in and make sense of Peter being very adamant and being willing to lay down his very life for Jesus is told by Jesus that he will actually deny knowing him three times before morning. So they're hearing, you're not coming, 
I'm leaving. They're hearing one of you is a traitor, and they're seeing one of their leaders being told, you won't confess that you know me. So try to take that in. Try to comprehend it. The amount of confusion, the amount of chaos, turmoil, shock that must have been churning in their hearts and minds at this point. What is happening? They've heard, I'm leaving. You're not going. I go to the Father. You don't. One of you is a betrayer, and guess what? Your leader is a denier. So I'm wondering for us, how can we relate? If any of us are feeling similarly in our own circumstances with our health, our families, our careers, our finances, our marriages, our friendships, our futures, just not able to sort through the chaos and start struggling to put the pieces together and not sure how to proceed, just simply at a loss. But and maybe that's not where you're at today. And praise God if those heavy matters aren't weighing on your hearts and minds. I would encourage you to take time to consider whether your comfortable circumstances have become in any way distracting to you in your relationship with the Lord. To take time to consider to what degree your calm and dependence have been secured to your circumstances. So there are many of us here who have heavy things weighing on us, tied to what happened with Andrew, tied to what's happening with Nadine. Um, that might not be where you are in your circumstances, but I would say there's uh, equally uh, as much of an opportunity for you to take and examine where you are in your circumstances to make sure that the calm in your circumstances isn't your source of calm in your heart. Whether you're feeling troubled or not, we should all be anchored to the truth that Jesus shares in this account. So it's uh, much easier for us to identify with the disciples. Uh, they were people like us. Uh, and so what they've been feeling, we can uh, you know, attempt to uh, identify with. But I think a much deeper appreciation for the situation is generated when we try to understand the scenario from the perspective of Jesus. So uh, we're going to look at the heart of Jesus for the hearts of his followers. So Jesus, our Lord, he's dealing with the weight of all that lies before him as well. He's leading the disciples through their own struggles. But then earlier in John chapter 12, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I've come to this hour, Father, glorify your name. And then in John chapter 13, knowing what Judas was committed to doing and betraying him, he says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Isaiah prophesied about the Lord in chapter 63, verse 9, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. So in addition to trying to lead and shepherd and care for his disciples who were struggling to grasp the big picture, Jesus is also feeling the weight of the situation. He did an incredibly better job at shepherding and loving his disciples in this moment than any of us could have ever done, especially given what he was feeling and dealing with. So imagine being in a situation where you feel like you just want somebody to get it. You have complete understanding and grip on the situation, but the other person just doesn't seem to understand. It's so simple. It's so easy to grasp. Why don't you just get it? How could they not understand, not see it your way? I think about this from like a parent-child situation. 
and then from a child-parent situation. How come you just can't get it? How come you just can't see it the way that it is? It's very clear. It's almost as if they're refusing to understand because the solution is so obvious and so clear. So Jesus sees every aspect of the situation with absolute certainty and confidence, but the disciples just can't seem to take it in. And then I started thinking, um, in addition to that, in addition to their lack of understanding, the disciples are interpreting what Jesus is sharing as bad news. And their attempt to process and put together what Jesus is sharing, they default to deciding, because we can't understand it, it can't be good news. And so, I mean, I do that in my own situations, in my own circumstances. Because I don't understand, it's got to be bad. Because I can't see the whole picture, because I can't put all the, picture, the, the pieces together in my own mind, it can't be good. They're less than 24 hours away from, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Peter's trying to talk him out of it not realizing that billions of people need this to take place in order to experience peace with God in relationship with His Son. Later on in this discussion with His disciples, Jesus will tell them that it's good news that He's leaving. He says, you heard me say to you, I'm going away and I'll come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. So I can identify more with where the disciples are in the situation, and at the same time, I'm so grateful for a Savior who is patient, gentle, and loving, even in the midst of working through his own weighty matters. He was patient instead of pompous. He was gentle instead of aggressive. He took the time to explain things to them instead of telling them, just forget about it, it's way over your head. He was compassionate instead of cold-hearted. The Example that I was thinking about was um, a parent who has a child who says that they're afraid of the dark. Um, And, I mean, the darkness is just the absence of light. You just can't see. But there's no reason to be afraid of the dark. And as a parent, I can take the perspective of just simply saying, there's nothing to be afraid of. Get over it and leave. Close the door. Deal with it. Or... I can be the kind of parent who says, listen, I love you. There is nothing to be afraid of. But then I let them watch me check their closet. I let them watch me check under the bed. I plug in a nightlight for them. I care for them. I pray with them. I tell them that Jesus is the light. And I share truth with them. That's the kind of Savior that we have here in this situation with the disciples. They just don't get it. But it's such good news. But he doesn't get angry or frustrated at them. We also have a Lord who's able to sympathize with us. Hebrews 4.15 says, We don't have a high priest who's unable, or the opposite of that would be, We do have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. One who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows better than any of us the fullness of temptation because he never gave in to temptation. He was fully God and fully man. So he can sympathize with our weaknesses. He's familiar with those weaknesses. So the implication for for us, for you, as you consider this, is do you ever feel like people around you don't understand? Like they have no idea what you're going through. Well, Jesus can sympathize with that.
Do you ever feel like the weight of the world is on your shoulders? Well, Jesus can sympathize with that. Do you ever feel like you've been wrongly accused or humiliated? Well, Jesus can sympathize with that. So we need to stop saying that no one understands. That no one can feel what I'm feeling because it isn't true. Jesus felt all of those things and more to the fullest extent. He can sympathize with you and he cares about you. In addition to this, Jesus knew the hearts and minds of his followers. John chapter 2 says, He knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. He loved them. He felt compassion towards them. He didn't desire for them to think that they'd been abandoned or lost. He didn't want them to be confused or unsettled. In light of all their feeling and thinking, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. That word troubled can mean disturbed, restless, distressed, or stirred up. Um, It's the same word that's used to describe the, the pool that the lame man wants to be put into when the waters are stirred. So think about that stirring in your own heart, that restlessness. It's a quote from Charles Spurgeon about this reality with Jesus and the disciples. He says, I'm very glad that the disciples were not perfect men. They would then have understood all that Jesus said at once. And we should have lost our Lord's instructive explanations. They would also have lived above all trouble of mind. And then the master would not have said to them these golden words, let not your hearts be troubled. So we can identify with the disciples. And at the same time, what a savior we have. What a Lord, what a compassionate, patient, loving Lord he is. So how will Jesus look to comfort and reassure to settle his followers? And what way will he direct them so that they are anchored and secured from being stirred up, from being tossed about? What are his assurances and truth to combat their fears, worries, and uninformed assumptions? What's the answer for us when we can't make sense of the situation, when we want so deeply, so deeply to stamp our circumstances as bad news because I don't understand it? First point is that believers have every reason to trust him wholeheartedly. Great comfort and confidence starts with trusting the Lord. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. So where can peace, calm, clarity, and and dependability be found but in a right relationship with God through his son, Jesus? In John 10.30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Belief in God only is just religion. Belief in His Son as well is relationship. If I only believe in God, I've only done just as good as the demons do that James talks about. But if I believe in God and His Son, God the Son, I have a relationship with God. Belief is the whole purpose of John's writing to begin with. You know, a couple of years we went through the book of John And, you know, several times we went back to John chapter 20 to be reminded of why John wrote this letter. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
and that by believing you may have life in his name. Uh, when telling the disciples beforehand that one of him would betray him, Jesus says in John 13, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Later on in verse 11, he goes further in telling, in chapter 14, verse 11, to believe that he's the one with, that he is one with the Father, saying, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or Believe on account of the works themselves. So just look at what I've done and believe that I am who I say I am based on what I've done. So Jesus is telling them, I am the anchor for your soul. Depend on me. I am the rock on dry ground. Trust on me. I'm the bronze serpent in the desert. Look to me. I'm the good shepherd of the flock. Follow me. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in me. So he starts with that foundation, that clarity. The implication for us today. How much more so can we appreciate these words, his concern, his directing our hearts to the true and lasting source of comfort and confidence. That we have been indwelt by the very Spirit of God and are able to look back on this account with a much clearer understanding of why Jesus was making these statements, believe in God, believe also in me. So now that the foundation of their belief has been laid, Jesus looks to speak to some of their direct and specific concerns that seem to be causing distress within them. So the second point here, believers have every reason to trust him with their forever home. So one of their concerns is surely centered around the question of where is my place? Where's my home? Where's my rest? Where's my security if you're leaving? For three years, they've been on the road, on tour, without a home, a place to call theirs. They'd heard Jesus say that foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. They also heard the response of Jesus to the rich young ruler when he shows up And he ends up walking away sad because Jesus told him he'd need to leave everything behind that he had on this earth in order to follow him. And then Jesus responds saying, Truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Yet, now each of them are left with the question, Where do I go from here if you're leaving me behind? Where is my home? So we have a home that awaits us. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. Many rooms in the uh, original text would have been interpreted as dwelling places. So God has a home. In fact, he has a home with lots of rooms, places to live, a place to belong. So in ancient times, whenever you married off a son or a daughter... Um, Instead of them going, if they were going to stay where you were, and building their own home somewhere, um, similarly, I was thinking about if you ever want to put a fence in your backyard, you're in a great situation if both of your neighbors have already put a fence in, right? Because you just got to close off the one wall. So in ancient times, if I'm going to build my own home, instead of building a four-wall structure, I'm going to save time and materials by building onto mom and dad's house. So I'm going to build my home attached to theirs, and now we have one large home, but there are many dwelling places there. 
Um, so that's kind of the, the context uh, in the ancient times to put there. So Jesus tells his disciples, his father's house already has many rooms, places for them to come, to belong, and to enjoy being together. Next, his reputation seals our future. He puts his reputation on the line by saying, if it were not so, would I have told you? Now, you may have a footnote in your text that uses this as its own uh, separate sentence that would say, um, if it were not so, uh, would I have told you? And he's referring back to the house. But the way that we read it in our text, if you're reading through the ESV, it sounds like he's talking about what he's about to say. So either way, it's his reputation that he's putting on the line. Um, He says, I'm not a liar. I will not try to mislead you. If this wasn't the case, I would have cleared it up with you. But it is true because I said it. Because I know it. And you can take comfort in it as you wrestle with where you belong. This to me is one of the most powerful assurances that we have from the words of Jesus himself because he puts his reputation on the line for the sake of what he's telling his disciples about their future home. If it were not so, would I have told you? Now, I feel like I have a pretty decent reputation. Um, Like I'm pretty consistent and dependable. But this is Jesus. And if he's going to put his reputation on the line, it's done. I mean, you can stake your eternity on it, literally, because it's Jesus putting his reputation on the line for this. So next, his going is for our good. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, has there ever been in all of history a more dependable person than Jesus? If he says he's going to do it, it's done, it's finished. His preparing a place for us can be taken in two senses. So obviously, it's regarding our actual home. Jesus was resurrected to a physical, touchable, glorified body, and that necessitates a physical place to exist. So he goes to get ready our forever physical home. This going to prepare could also be thought of in terms of like uh, how Joseph is sent to Egypt. It's not great circumstances, but we know that God was using those circumstances in Joseph's life to go prepare a place for Joseph's family to come to live, to have food, to have safety, and to grow to become the nation of Israel that we're learning about today in Exodus. So God sends Joseph to prepare that place. So in a sense, Jesus is gone to make ready to prepare that place. But secondly, his going to prepare a place is in regards to his creating access to peace with God through his sacrifice. He's clearing the way, removing any roadblocks due to our sin. And so place can be defined here as our condition or our station, which is held by someone within a group or assembly. So Jesus left his followers on a mission to establish the righteous standing that we all need for salvation. He's going to prepare our place where God is, where He is, that righteousness that we needed. One pastor said, He passed through death to resurrection and ascension to remove every obstacle from our path. And today He continues to ensure our access through His interceding to the Father on our behalf. So Jesus continues to solidify our place within God's forever home. 
So this was his response, his assurance to his followers as they wrestled with where to go from here. Where do I belong? Where am I headed? He tells them, you have a home, and it's with God, and I'm going so that you can come too. Then Jesus sets up this if-then statement. Um, He says, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So the next point, believers have every reason to trust that he will come back for us. So here's how the logic of that statement flows. His going to accomplish and complete his work, to prepare that place for us, will automatically result in the fulfillment of that work, which is that he'll come back, he'll return, and take the very ones that he's completing the work on behalf of so that they can be with him where he is. So his effort isn't wasted. His work is not in vain. He will complete the work. And so this commitment, this promise by Jesus in the midst of everything that his disciples are feeling and fretting over had to be such a relief to them. His coming back is our going with him. So in addition, Jesus says, I'll come back again. One of my favorite titles for Jesus is the coming one. And it's found in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 37. It says, for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. I love that. As I look forward to the return of Jesus, that's one of my favorite titles um, for him uh, as I celebrate that promise of the second coming. What's interesting is that John doesn't talk much about the second coming in the book of John, which may be why Jesus decides to give him the vision that leads to Revelation. I don't know. Um, This is one of the few places at all that we see John mention the coming again of Jesus. So not only is Jesus making a commitment to return, but he tells them he will take them to himself. He says, I'll take care of the logistics. And in that sense, he's basically the chauffeur of salvation. He says, I will come again and will take you to myself. The greatest comfort in this statement is that where he is, is where we will be. They've heard him say, I'm leaving, you're not going, I go to the Father and you don't. And now the greatest news they could hope to hear is where I am, is where he will be also. This is good news for all of us, because what would a forever home be if Jesus wasn't there? John Piper says, the very essence of heaven is the presence of Jesus. The very presence of Jesus is the essence of heaven. As far as I know, and I've never been inside of one of these, but prisons also have many rooms. I want to be where Jesus is. doesn't matter what it looks like. doesn't matter what's around me if he's there with me. He tells them that they know the way to where he's going. And what a confidence booster it must have been for them to hear the Lord tell them that they know anything. He says, you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas is like that person who asks the question that everybody else is thinking, but they're too afraid to ask. He says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? 
But Thomas missed Jesus' remark. He said, you know the way, not the where. Thomas, like all of us, is thinking that in order to get directions and ways, I have to put in the where. I can't know the way unless I know the where, which seems logical, except that Jesus had already said, if I go, I'll come back and I'll take you to myself. So what's the point of knowing where? Um, I had a chance to go over to some friend's house yesterday, and they live um, a little bit in the country, and I got lost. I thought I knew the where, um, and ways didn't know the way. Uh, so I ended up on some back roads. It was a beautiful drive. Um, it was the scenic route. But thankfully, even though in the moment I felt helpless because I don't know how to get there, that I have access to be able to get in touch with that person. So that person called me and told me exactly what I needed to do. They said, where are you now? And I described it, and they said, here's what you need to do. So that relationship that I have there, that connection that I have, provided me the instructions to know how to get to where I was going, even though I didn't know the way to get there. Think about how Abram's journey started. Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, who eventually becomes Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make, you, make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. So Abraham wasn't provided the where. Just the instructions. Go. Leave. Once you get there, I'll let you know. Jesus clears up Thomas's misunderstanding saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus's statement gives us the clarity we need. Our next point here, believers have every reason to trust the way the truth, and the life. Here's what's important. Is that Jesus says that he is the way, not a way. That Jesus says that he is the truth, not a truth. That he is the life, not a life. Um, I was reminded recently, if you had an opportunity to watch any of the Super Bowl there was a commercial there about Scientology um, and just some of the absurd statements that were shared if you go back and you, uh, you look at the words. So I wrote out the words for us so um, we could all uh, try to take in and understand what they're saying about what they believe. It says, if you think that all is lost, think again. They also have a positive song. And playing in the background, so I'm going to try to be positive here. If you think that all is lost, think again. It's there, within you, something that can never die. The power to live again, because nothing is more powerful than you. Curious? I don't know if you caught it, but the word you happens a lot in that statement, right? There's another video I watched uh, and 
uh, here's what it said. Deep down, you know you're not defeated. You're not weak. You're not too old or too young or too small. Deep down, you know the truth. That you are a giant tied down with string. And at any moment, you can rise. The only question is, how? Curious? What do we do with a message that's so self-centered and so self-empowered around salvation? Isn't that what our culture craves? Is to know or to believe that all I need is already within me? I don't need to depend on anybody else for anything. I just need you to confirm that all I need is already in me. The truth, the ability to rise again. wonder what Lazarus would have said about that as he lied dead in the tomb before Jesus called him out. But that's the kind of society that we live in. One that wants to be so self-sufficient one that wants the source of true freedom and power and even resurrection to come from within ourselves. The truth is that Jesus came to become the way. Hebrews chapter 10 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus went and became the way, giving us the ability to draw near, to come close to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Jesus went and prepared the way. For his followers, the where is the way. Early references to Christianity were actually called the way. So I know the Mandalorian tried to hijack this phrase by saying this is the way. But it started with early Christians. Several times in Acts, we see this referenced in Acts chapter 9. Saul, who becomes Paul, tried to find any belonging to the way men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So when I'm feeling unsure about my future, about what's next, maybe just about my tomorrow, I don't have to worry about figuring out the path ahead because I know and I am known by the way. When I'm having conversation with, with friends about what they believe, Jesus didn't present himself as a way, and so neither should I. He is the way. The only way to the Father. Next, truth does not exist outside of Jesus. Jesus is the standard for all truth. John opens up his letter by presenting Jesus as the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. He said, We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He said, for from his fullness we've all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In 1 John, John picks this same theme up. He says, we know that the Son of God has, become, has come and has given us understanding 
so that we may know him who is true. We are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So in a lost world where truth is relative, where it's fluid, where it's based on societal norms, it's even more important for us to look to Jesus who not only tells the truth, represents the truth, but embodies the truth. He is the truth. Next, Jesus is the good and the life in the good life. I'm sure many of you have seen that brand, the good life, and they put an image on there of a Jeep or of a mountain, and that's the good life, right? Jesus is the good and the life. Early on in his letter, John tells us, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 10.10 says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And Jesus has already proclaimed this incredible truth to Martha after raising Lazarus from the grave, or before raising Lazarus from the grave. He says, uh, he told her, your brother will rise again. Martha responded, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Paul addresses the people of Athens. Um, He tells them that the true God is not like their various false gods. He says, he is not far from each of us. And then he quotes one of their poets saying, in him we live and move and have our being. Jesus is the life. Um, so I wanted to there we go. Uh, close with a quote from C.S. Lewis. So in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis, Lewis creates this scenario where he says, Jesus is either one of three things. He's either a liar. He just flat out wasn't telling the truth. He was a lunatic who was just off his rocker, who was just saying crazy things, or he's Lord. Everything he said was true, and he deserves our worship, and he deserves us to believe in and to follow him. He says, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him simply being a great human teacher. You cannot say he was just a good person. He says, he has not left that open to us And he did not intend to. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life, that's it. Not a way, not a truth, not a life. John Piper summarized that quote by C.S. Lewis saying, In other words, the way Jesus spoke like no one else ever spoke makes it irrational to speak nice things about him while rejecting his deity. He was not nice if he was not God. He didn't blur the lines for us. And so we shouldn't blur the lines with others, but also not within our own understanding of who he is. The lordship he has over my life. The, the truth that he presents to me. That he provides for me. The life that he's called me to in him. 
The assurance that we're provided through the truth that Jesus shares allow us to respond as the psalmist did in Psalm 46. So thinking back to how he starts this conversation, let not your hearts be troubled. And then he shares this truth with us. The psalmist says, therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Our application for today. Number one, be encouraged, but also encourage one another with Jesus' calming command. Let not your hearts be troubled. So remember, he knows our pain. He knows our hurt. He says he knows our struggle better than we do, and he wants us to be comforted in the midst of it. Be sure to follow up those tender words with the same reasons that Jesus provided for us, the same truth that Jesus provided for us as to why our hearts don't need to be troubled. And then number two, share the truth with others that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You never know when the Holy Spirit is priming someone's heart in a conversation that he's leading you to have with them to share this truth and this reality with them. So let's be faithful to share that Jesus is the way, not a way, the truth, not a truth, and the life, not a life. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful to you for our time today. Grateful to be able to come and be directed to this passage and grateful for your tenderness, for your patience, for your loving kindness towards your disciples in the midst of everything that they were feeling in this moment. Grateful for the, the truth that you directed their hearts to, ultimately, to believe on you, to trust upon you, to depend upon you, but also that you put your reputation on the line in telling them that there is a place for them, that there is a place for us, that you were leaving, but that you will come back. And you won't just come back to take us anywhere, but you'll come back to take us to where you are. Lord, we long for your return. We're grateful that you are the coming one. And we pray, Lord, do not delay. Come quickly. Come soon. We're ready. Lord, protect us from staking our calmness of heart on any easy circumstances. Lord, let us not be distracted. Lord, regardless of our situations, this is the truth that we need to be reminded of. This is the truth that we need to be anchored to that you are the way, the truth, and the life. We love you. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.